And open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. We've been talking about worship, and of course the real theme in this is true worship, which is what Jesus talks about in Matthew, in John chapter 4, which we spend quite a bit of time in. When Jesus tells us that the Father, God, longs for true worshipers, and then he tells us what they are, who worship him in spirit and in truth. And we've looked at what it means to worship him in spirit, why that's so critical, the fact that God is a spirit, that's what verse 24 says, and therefore we must worship him in spirit and in truth. Spirit means that God exists in a spirit realm, not in a physical realm. So we can't worship God. We can, we can do other things, but we can't worship God with our mind. We can't worship God with our hands. Those can be expressions of it, but we worship God in the spirit man that God's given us because God is a spirit. The second aspect that we saw was it needs to be in the spirit because it's the Holy Spirit's responsibility to reveal him to us. And we've been looking at worship as a response to seeing who God really is. And then we talked about truth. Walking, worshiping Him in truth is important because to, under, to, to respond to God, we have to see Him as He really is, not as we think He is or want Him to be. And we realize that many of us, all of us, to some degree, have been raised with some training, some indoctrination that forms an image of who God is, good, bad, indifferent or very much involved, whatever it is. And in, through life, we formed our own images of God. And in, in almost all cases, they're to some degree wrong. And so the beginning of worship then is also being willing to see God as he really is, to walk in truth with God. And then we saw, but the other side of that, which is the more challenging side, is we have to be willing to be honest about ourselves, to walk in truth about ourselves. We looked at Adam and Eve and how they, they, once they sinned, the first thing they did is they made for themselves coverings. They took fig leaves and they sewed them together to cover up their own nakedness and their own sin. And we saw that we've done that. We form an image of ourselves, a spiritual image we want people to think of us as either holy or whatever it is. Whatever image you want God to think of you and other people to think of you, or you want to think of yourself. The problem is the images we make of ourselves for ourselves get in our way of allowing God to show us what we're really like. We saw that when God took away their fig leaves, their covering, He made a covering of His own that He gave them that was made through the blood of animals. And God's given us a covering before Him. It's the robe of righteousness of Christ Jesus. God took, Jesus bore our sins, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He took our old image away that we used to cover ourselves and to cover our nakedness and, and our exposure and our sin and he gave us a robe of righteousness that wasn't ours, it was Christ's righteousness he gave us to wear. And with that righteousness, we can come openly and boldly before him. But it's hard to wear his righteousness until you're willing to let go of your own robe that you've made for yourself. And so we've seen that in order to receive the goodness of God, the wonderfulness of God, which triggers the worship, the fear of God, which triggers the worship so that we don't run away, we have to be willing to see the goodness of God, and you can only see the grace of God and know the grace of God when you realize how much you need the grace of God in your life. We've looked at worship as a response, and we're going to see that again here in Isaiah. Worship as a response to seeing God for who He is and then seeing us for who we are. It's a response. It's not something you do out of your mind. Isaiah chapter 6, of course, is the story of, Jesus, of, of Isaiah being taken up in a vision. This was in preparation for his ministry. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. One cried, Holy. One cried to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. The posts of the door were shaken. By the voice of him who cried, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King of the Lord of hosts. 
Then one of the angels flew over, taking in his hands a coal off of the altar, and he touched his lips and said, Your iniquity is taken away, your sin is purged. And then Isaiah was released into ministry. And here's the pattern for true worship. True worship is always a response to seeing, first of all, who God is, and then seeing in light of who He is, who I am on my own. And that's the process you see here in Isaiah. I found a quote. I was studying some things out, and I found a, uh, was reading some things after Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon is probably one of the greatest preachers in England's history. And thousands upon thousands were saved under his ministry. Great pastor, a great preacher. Uh, and, and I found a book that has some of his notes from his messages. And the first one I found got my attention because it says, Knowing the God we worship. And that's what this series is. Knowing the God we worship. Because if worship is seeing him for who he is, then what we're looking at now in this series is, Who is he? What is he like? And he wrote this comment in here, and it fits in with, with what we just said. Divine worship is an act wherein the devout soul, that's us, prostrates himself before God in entire submission. And listen to this. It begins, it begins in wonder. We sang this morning, what an awesome God. It begins in wonder, awe of who he is. It deepens to reverence. And it's perfected in love for Him. So the progression is, it just starts out by looking at Him. And it's not wondering, like, I wonder who God is. It's wonder and standing in awe of Him. And that awe, when you stand in that long enough, continue in it. doesn't mean you stand in it all day. But you continue in that relationship. It begins to produce in you a reverence for who He is. And that is what is so lacking in the church in the United States today. Rat lacking in our... At, it's an attitude. Reverence is an attitude. So it starts with wonder at who we are, His. And so few Christians even stand in awe of Him. I talked about the fact, and this is really what he's saying here, that worship comes from the old English word worthship, which means to recognize the surpassing worth of someone or something as compared to your worth on your own. And that's what we're looking at here. And so we've begun to look at God and see what the Bible says about Him. And the first thing that we saw about Him is that He's the creator of everything. Everything comes from Him. He is the beginning. He's, he, he's, he's what banged in the Big Bang. They go everything back to the Big Bang, but they don't know what banged. He's the bang. He's what went off. He's the, he released everything. It comes from Him. And everything comes from Him. Your breath that you're breathing right now Sweet or sour, it's coming from Him. The sourness isn't coming from Him, but the breath is. Every beat of your heart. And we take all of this for granted because we're so used to it. And when we do that, we really take Him for granted. He is the source of everything. And because of that, He deserves an honor in our lives. He is the only God. There is no other God. We look at scriptures in Isaiah where he said, Hey, I've looked around up here. I don't see anybody else. I don't know who you're worshiping, but there's no other God here but me. So every other God we worship is a God we made. Because there's no other alternative. Satan is not a God. He's a fallen angel. And yet what he desires more than anything else is for us to worship him. So we looked at God and we in that vein. And we saw God's dealing with Job and the way God brought correction to Job and an adjustment in Job's attitude by saying, where were you when I laid out the foundation of the earth? Do you know its measurements? Do you know this? And he basically reminded Job of who God was. Then last time we met about this, Pastor Ray preached last Sunday, last time we met about this, we looked at his holiness because look what the angels say. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. I get so concerned when I see people, whether it's professional worshipers or even amateur worshipers publicly, or even we can do this privately. We're professing to be worshiping God, 
and yet living an unholy life? How can you live an unholy life and truly worship a holy God? You can't. So that means when we're living an unholy lifestyle and we're professing to be worshiping God, we're deceiving ourselves because we can't possibly be worshiping a holy God. Because God is holy. He is pure. And we looked at the things He was pure in. But most of all, He's pure in righteousness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. God's been dealing with me about the fact that, because what we're seeking after, this is the whole purpose for this whole series we've been in since the middle of last year about true worship, is God has called us, and it's not just us, God is calling His church to come to Him and worship Him. And I'm seeing more and more that whatever it is we're facing that's coming in the future, and it's coming, what is going to cause us to succeed or fail is whether we're true worshipers or not. It's not going to believe your belief system. It's not even going to believe your, be your doctrine. It's not going to be, you know, your, your, your faith is involved in it. But what it's ultimately going to be is to learn to be true worshipers. Because when, you're, when you get tested for why you believe what you believe, it's the relationship that holds you together. Not your doctrine, not, your, not, not whether you like the church, it's not the style of music. What holds you in when they put a gun to your head and says, are you going to deny Christ or not, is the relationship you have with Him. Because when He's real to you and you know Him, you can't deny Him. But you can deny your doctrine and walk away from it when your life's on the line. So this is not just a good thing to do. One of the things that the Lord showed me through this fast, this is critical for what's coming. This is critical for what's coming. God knows what's coming, and because He is our Father and He loves us, He will prepare us for what's coming if we will allow Him to. God tried to prepare that first generation of Israelites to get into the promised land. It's where he wanted them. He tried to prepare them, but they wouldn't listen to him. They wouldn't do the things he said to do, so he couldn't bring them in. The second generation listened, and God was able to bring them in. That's always sobering to me, because that means God has a will for us, but there's our side to it of whether or not that will become part of this church or become part of our lives, and it's our response to that will. It's our choice. But God doesn't just one day stand up and say, all right, today you've got to decide. He works with us. He prepares us. He draws us. He woos us. He pleads with us sometimes. He deposits desires in our heart, and all we have to do is be willing and open and allow Him to work with things and be willing to face the truth about ourselves, be willing to let Him correct us, be willing to let Him woo us, be willing to let Him. He's well able to do this. He's got lots of experience and lots of success. And so I'm very hopeful for what is to come because I sense God pressing in on us. He wouldn't press in on us if He knew we weren't able to do it. And He's calling us to true worship. But that's going to require holiness in our lives. We won't be able to just get along with, you know, coming in, being casual about God and, you know, and living the way we want because that's what the church in the United States has been lulled into. that the purpose of God's saving us, the purpose of church, is so that we can live a wonderful, happy life, be blessed from the beginning to the end, and God wants us to be blessed. God wants us to enjoy life, but that's a byproduct. That's never the goal in the Bible. The goal is an intimate relationship with a holy God. With a holy God. Just look at Acts chapter 5. If you want the presence of God, you've got to realize Ananias and Sapphira simply lied about their offering and dropped dead in church. And Peter said, you lied to the Holy Spirit. Have you ever done that? Ah, don't be so quick to answer. Don't be so quick to answer. And the fact that you and I are alive today means that His full presence isn't here yet. 
Now hear this, because as I was praying about this this morning, as God's presence came down on Mount Sinai in, in Exodus 19, which is really what's underneath all this, what God put in my heart is Exodus 19:17, which says, as Moses brought the people out to meet with their God. As a result of that encounter, the people became afraid and walked away. They were afraid of His holiness. They were afraid of His power. They were afraid of His majesty, and they walked away. Moses saw the same thing. Joshua saw the same thing, and they drew closer. They drew closer. And what's the difference? The difference was the desire of their heart. They drew closer to a holy God so that His holiness would draw them into that holiness. The people ran away from God because they didn't want to change. They wanted what they want. Moses was far from perfect. Joshua was far from perfect. All of us are far from perfect. There's only been one perfect that's walked on this earth. So it's not that you've got to be perfect. It's holy. And a desire for holiness. A willingness for holiness. Holy, holy. So the second thing we saw about God is He's a holy God. And if we're going to worship Him, we have to be willing to come into the presence of holiness and not run away and be afraid. Today we're going to look at the third. It's right in here. Back in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Now, there are several words that are translated in the Old Testament, Lord. There are basically two. The pre predominant one is Yahweh or Jehovah in English, which means it's the I Am, the self-existent one. But this word is a different word that's also used. It's Adonai, A-D-O-N-A-I. Adonai, and that word means king, master ultimate authority. And that's the as one of the aspects of God that the church has lost sight of. So we're going to look this morning and probably into next, into, not next week, but after that, because Lafayette Scales will be here. We're going to look at what does it mean that He is Lord? We're going to look at His Lordship, not to learn doctrine, but to get a sense, a touching in our heart of who this God is that saved me and loves me, and wants to be called my Father. Remember, we've looked at this balance before, because with God there's two sides to Him, but there's still God. There's God who is holy, God who is Lord, God who is almighty, God who is all these ultimate, absolute qualities. But He's also Father. We use the example of John F. Kennedy when he's president. And that famous picture of the, uh, the, the, white, the Oval Office in the White House, and he's sitting back there talking to some dignitaries about world power, and under his desk is his little son, John John, playing in the seat, in the, in, in the, under the desk that's the seat of the most powerful nation in the world. And he's in there freely because of the relationship he has with the commander-in-chief, the relationship he has with the President of the United States. He has a right to be there because he's his father, but that still doesn't take away from the authority and the power that his father had. And so it's the blending together of those two that we need to see. And we will look at the love of God and the fatherhood of God as part of the worship also. Because remember the progression that goes from wonder to reverence to love. Worshiping God because we love Him. But you can't love Him until you know Him. In all of His totality. We want parts of Him we love. But we need to know all of Him. Because His authority is as, is as much His love in your life as the good things that you think He does for you, the blessings that He brings into your life. Correction is more of a blessing than a new car. Because the new car won't keep you from getting in trouble, but correction will. Correction has eternal benefits. A new car starts rusting when you start driving it through New England winters. 
He is Lord. Well, what does that mean? We're going to look at that. What does that mean? The word is Adonai. It means master as compared to a slave. Now, what is a master as compared to a slave? A master, it's his will that's carried out. The master and the slave don't have a discussion about what they're going to do. King and subject. In our nation, we live in a nation where you get the vote to put the king in office. But in many countries, a king doesn't get voted in. You wake up, you're born into under his or her authority. And back in the old days, it was absolute. Nebuchadnezzar had absolute authority over who lived or died. Whatever, if he hinted at something, it was done. No debate. You debate, you look, you look the wrong way. They remove the part of you that could object. <laughs> Henry VIII, King of England, had eight, had how many wives? Eight wives? If he just didn't, they didn't do what he wanted. And nobody could do anything about it because they had absolute authority. So whether it's the relationship of a master and a slave or it's a relationship of king and subject, the issue is absolute authority. So when a command is given, there's no discussion, there's no thought about it. The only issue is how fast do I carry it out or the other choices. That's in worldly realms and circles. How much more than ought it to be when it's God? So the idea of somebody who is Lord means that it is their will that's carried out. There's not a discussion about what's the best thing to do here. That's not even open to thought, let alone discussion. The only issue when you're dealing under a lordship is whether you carry it out completely or not. That's the only issue. It's the Lord's will that's carried out. And it's not a matter of what the right thing to do is. The only right thing is to obey. Now again, for us in the Western Hemisphere, especially in this country, that's hard for us to get our mind around because governments... All kinds of organizations that we set up are, are basically underneath them. Most of them are to some degree based on principles of democracy. And that may be fine for political government, but we transfer that attitude over to God's kingdom. And we think that every four years we get to re-elect the king. And that in the meantime, we get to elect and re-elect those that he has assigned over us. Because that's what the right thing to do is. That's what freedom means. Not in the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is not a democracy. God's kingdom is an absolute monarchy. It's not a democracy. And unless we understand that, we're going to run upstream against God's authority in our life and continually be bumping into it and bumping into it and struggling with it. And I'm telling you by the Spirit of God today, that's the issue in some of your lives why things aren't going right. Because you have an issue with authority. Whether it's in the, in the world or in the church or in your home. Romans chapter 13. I knew this would be popular. But it's the truth. And if you know the truth, it will set you free. Romans 13. Verse 1. Let every soul, let every soul, 
let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by Him. I'll read that again and explain to you what Paul's saying here. Because some people have misinterpreted that. There are some books that are written that I've read that are misinterpreting that. Let every soul be subject to governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. What that's saying is, all true authority has its origin in God. Just as God is the origin of creation, just as God is the source of holiness, God is also the source of authority. There is no authority that exists that's legal authority that has not come from God. God is the source of authority. We teach a course here on spiritual authority. And it's a, it's a, it's a curriculum that, that God gave me. I wrote it a number of years ago that we've been, made some adjustments to it. But I went to the Lord and I said, all right, well, <laughs> this is the way my mind works. Why are you an authority? And it wasn't disrespectful. I'm trying to understand. He said, I am the final authority because I made everything. Authority comes from the fact that you own it. If you have a car that you own, when you bought that car, they transferred ownership to you by giving you a certificate of title, bill of sale, a certificate of title. That's the legal evidence. But they gave you a practical evidence that you were now the owner of it and you had authority over it because they handed you over the what? The keys. The keys are the practical evidence of your authority over that car. But they came to you from the one who owned it before you. And you can trace that ownership back to the original owner, which was the car dealer, but even they're not the original owner. The original owner is Buick, Ford, Chevrolet. It's who made it. And the fact that they made that car is what gave them initially authority and ownership of that car, and they've transferred that along to those that either bought it, rented it, or whatever. Follow me on that? That's pretty simple. Now let's bring it back to what we're talking about. Who made you? Yeah, your parents, but who made them? Who made the process by which they made you? And who put their spirit in you? Not your parents. God did. Your life, every moment you and I live, was created by God. So if He created it, guess what? He owns it. And if He owns it, He has authority over it. Now we'll talk next time about what it means when we try to operate outside that authority. You may want to pray and fast before that one. So there's no authority except from God. Now there can be people that try to create their own authority, but what Paul's saying is it's not legal authority. Because I've read books where they say, well... Ultimately, Hitler, God put Hitler in charge because all authorities come and Hitler's authority. But that was not legal authority. That was not legal authority. And the authorities that exist, this is what they used, are appointed by him. But there are people that have appointed themselves and they have no real authority before God. There are all kinds of people out there in the kingdom of God doing what they want to do. And it looks good. Start their own church. Start their own ministry. Go travel. They think they've got a gift. They start traveling. They're doing all these things. But they've never come under God's authority to find out, what do you want me to do? I've had people come to me and say, you know, you ought to write books. You ought to get these tape series out in the public. But God hasn't told me to do that. 
may be a good thing to do. It may produce good things, but it's not doing what he told me to do. My responsibility is my wife, my family, and you. Unless he shows us to do something else. But the issue is not, oh, that would be a wonderful thing to do. It's what you assigned me to do. All authority that exists, exists because God gave it. All right. So what we see now is authority comes from God. Now let's go and look a little bit at what this means translated into us in terms of worship. Let's go to Numbers 22. And, and this was some of what Spurgeon was referring to when he wrote this. This is not... I don't want to get... Don't get legalistic here. And I'll, I'll explain that as we go through this. Don't... Remember, worship is not so much what I do outwardly as it is what I am... what is coming out of me, out of my heart. That heart worship will be expressed with outward things just like King David was so excited when the ark was being returned, was being brought into Jerusalem, that he took his kingly robes off and danced and twirled before the ark as it was brought in. That's not because he thought that was a good thing to do. He just couldn't hold it in. There was a point last night, and the worship was such a crazy... Somebody took off and just ran around the church here. Can they do that? They couldn't help it. They were just so full of joy, they couldn't contain it. Now, that doesn't mean we need to all start running around the church. Because we focus on the wrong thing. We focus on what people do and not on what's, why they did it. So we form a sub-denomination called the Church of the Running Around the Sanctuary. So don't focus on what I'm about to talk about. What I want to share with you, what these men did, is the natural response to what they saw, and it signifies something. Everybody with me now? Okay. All right. <laughs> Numbers 22. We're going to pick up in 31. This is a story of Balaam. And I don't have time to get into all the details of Balaam, but Balaam was a prophet that um, a king came and hired him to prophesy against Israel, and he couldn't do it. He couldn't do it. On his way to do it, <laughs> this is what's always humbling for a preacher, he wouldn't listen to God, and so God has his donkey talk to him. And so as Pastor Sam was so apt to say often, you know, even, God's even spoken through a donkey, although that wasn't the term he used. But he's spoken through a donkey. And he says, if he can speak through a donkey, I can't take pride that he can speak through me. See, the donkey was willing. <laughs> All right. The donkey was willing to open his mouth and speak, and so God used the donkey. All right. Now, here's what happens. He comes to a narrow, narrow opening in the path, and there's an angel that's there blocking the way with a sword, and the donkey sees the angel. That's another thing. The donkey was more spiritually sensitive than Balaam was, a prophet. The donkey sees the angel and balks, and Balaam gets mad at the, at the donkey and starts hitting it, and finally God opens his eyes. And this is what I want you to see here. Verse 21. Thirty-one, I'm sorry, thirty-one. Now the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand, and he bowed, this is Balaam, he bowed his head and fell flat on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to stand against you because your way is perverse before me. What I want you to see here is when he saw the angel, God's representative, he couldn't stand and have a conversation with him. He fell on his face to the ground. Okay. Let's go to Joshua chapter 5. And there are many others. I just don't want to spend the time. Joshua chapter 5. Of course, what's happened here is the children of Israel 
have come out of, this is the second generation, they're preparing to go into the promised land. They've now corrected the error and those that had not been circumcised were circumcised. Again, that's a preparation to coming into the place God's prepared for you. It requires getting things right in his sight and they had not been circumcised the way the law, the way the covenant that God made with, with Abraham required. They had not been circumcised before they came in. Just as, just as Moses, as he was about to go back and to fulfill his commission and bring the children of Israel out, an angel of the Lord came to kill him. Wait a minute, how, he's just called him, he's going to kill him? Why? Because he hadn't circumcised his sons, which was obedience to the covenant that God made with Abraham. God made with Abraham. So before Moses could walk into the fullness of his call, before the children of Israel could go into the place God had called them, they had to get things right before God according to what he had required. And so they'd been circumcised and now they were waiting for healing. And this is what happens while they're doing this. They're facing, the first thing they're going to face when they cross in is the city of Jericho. Jericho, it says, was tightly shut up. Jericho, the archaeologists tell us, had a wall around it that was so wide that they ran chariot races on top of the wall. So now they're going to get into the promised land, and here's their next major obstacle. It's a fortified city. So Joshua doesn't know what to do. Let's pick up in the chapter 5 uh, in verse uh, 13. And it came to pass that when Joshua was by Cher- Jericho, that he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us, or are you for our adversaries? And he said, No, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And look what Joshua did. He fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said, "My, What does my Lord say to his servant. The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take your sandals off your feet for the place that you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. We've talked about the holiness of God. When Moses saw the burning bush, the first thing God said to him is take your shoes off because this is holy ground. So we've looked at God's holiness. We've looked at God as the author of things. But now we see when they saw a representative God, this is not God himself, this is a commander of the Lord's army What's his first reaction? Was to fall on his face. Now, does that mean worship means we've got to fall on our face? That's not what I'm talking about here. They recognize, because here's what Spurgeon says about this. Spurgeon says, These passages have the meaning of follow, falling prostrate before the object of worship. Divine worship is an act wherein the devout soul prostrates itself before prostrates itself before God in entire submission. So the act of falling on their face before God, the act of falling on their face before God is to signify that He is a higher authority than they are. When you fall down, when you stand up and look somebody in the eye, you're indicating that you're an equal with them. With children, our children, what I would do is when I was loving with them and when I was being dad and have fun and I was going to talk to them seriously, I would get down on their level and talk to them like this. You know when you talk looking down at children, you don't realize what a message that sends to them because they're always looking up at you. But when I came to talk to them as father, I stood up to make sure it was communicated, I'm the authority here, not you. Balaam sees an angel, a representative of God. Joshua sees the commander of the army, the Lord. They're not the Lord himself. They're just his representatives. That act puts their face lower than the face of the angel. By doing that, they're acknowledging they're a higher authority. There's something in us that's 
a little bit of our own image of ourselves when we stand tall and talk to somebody. Do you get on your face before somebody? It's a very humbling thing. It's, 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 it's not natural for us to be on our face in front of things. It's their, it was not because somebody taught them that if you see an angel, you fall on your face. They couldn't help it because there was something about the authority of those angels that was coming from God that they couldn't stand up and look at him directly. They had to come down. And notice what Spurgeon says. In submission. The word submit, if you break it apart in its components, is the prefix sub, which means under, and mish, which comes from a Latin word midio, which means to send. So literally to submit means to put yourself under something else. Under something else. This is why we don't like to submit to anybody. I'm not submitting to them. And we stiffen our neck, which is what Israel did. They wouldn't... God said, you have are stiff-necked people. What the stiff neck means is they wouldn't bow their neck. They wouldn't bow to recognize His supreme authority over them. So to truly worship because of who God really is, we have to acknowledge that He is the ultimate authority. That He is the ultimate authority. Well, what's the evidence of that? How do we know whether we're doing that or not? How does God see this? Let's go... Submission... Submission to... <laughs> I remember hearing Lafayette say this to somebody. Somebody had said to him, you know, because Lafayette walks in a ministry, an apostolic type ministry. So he has other churches that he has started that look to him as an authority, that look to him as a kind of a father over them. And he shared one time in one of our meetings, he said, I've had somebody come to me and said that they want to submit under my authority as an apostle. And he said, I said, yeah, that's wonderful. I, I'm, I, 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 I feel good about that. He said, but the only way I'm going to know that they've done that is the first time I tell them to do something they don't want to do. The only evidence, it's not what I say, it's not what I feel. The evidence that I have recognized somebody's authority is that I do what they say whether I want to or not. Whether I did I do what they say, whether I want to or not. Now let's look at what God says about this in the Old Testament. Then we're going to look quickly in the New Testament. Let's look over um, at Ezra chapter nine. Well, I'll tell you what it says because I, I want to save the time. This is a time when Israel has been, been evicted out of, out of Israel. They've been in, they've been in uh, for about 70 years, they've been in exile in Babylon, and now they've begun to come back. And Ezra was a scribe that came in to help with others to oversee this process of restoration of the temple and restoration of Jerusalem, which had basically been destroyed. And what happens in Ezra's writings is he discovered that, that the people were, were, were compromising who they were by intermarrying with the people that lived around them with Gentiles. Not only were they doing it, the priests were doing it. And that's very descriptive of today. Because we're, we're, we're selling our souls to, into the world. Into the system of the world, the values of the world, and the ways of the world. And that's really the same as marrying foreign wives. is joining ourselves to the God of this world and His ways. But that's a message for another day, which I'll have you pray and fast before we do that one also. <laughs> and what happens is he looks around at all this, and he's grieved about it, but then there gathers to him, and this is the, what it says. There's gathered to him, it says, those who still saw God as Lord and evidenced it because they trembled 
at his word. They trembled at his word. I'll show you where this fits in. Isaiah 66. Well, let's start in verse 1. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build for me? That shows God as the author of all things. Verse 2. For all those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord, but on this one I will look. On him who is poor, that's not talking about your bank account, that's talking about your spirit. On him who is poor and of a contrite or humble spirit, and who trembles at my word. Let me ask you a question. What place does God's word have in your life? Thing I need to ask myself periodically. Is God's word a resource that you turn to when you want comfort and help and answers? Then that's all it is to you. Then God is just a resource to you. Because God and His Word are one. The way you see God's Word is the way you see Him. I'm going to say that again. The way you see God's Word, not what you say you see it, the way you really see it, is the way you see Him. For many Christians, the Word of God, I'm talking about faithful, faith Christians, you know, tongue-talking Christians, God's Word is a resource they turn to when they get in trouble or they need comfort. For some of us, it's a book of directions, a book of instructions. It's a way to get to know God. But God's intention is that that book sitting in your lap be your authority in your life. And the measure of that is the first time it tells you to do something you don't want to do. And we're very sly about this. I'm talking to me as well as you. We come up with all kinds of ways, and we're going to look at this next time, all kinds of ways that we either lower what he's expecting or we come up with excuses for why it's not happening yet. And one of them is God's dealing with me about this. There was nothing in the master-slave, nothing in the king-subject relationship where the king was dealing with the subjects about something. I know you commanded me, you know, to go lead this army, but, but, but you're, you know, you're, you're still dealing with me about this, aren't you? There was no... Well, they dealt with it, but it was very fast, very decisive. <laughs> aren't you glad God's not one of them? But the point is it reveals how we see God. And God says, what blesses me, what I'm looking for, are people who are humble in their heart. And, to, and tremble at my word. Not because they're scared of him, but because there's an awesome reverence for God's word. Some of you were raised in churches where they, 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 they would you know, pray things before they opened the word, and that's not a bad thing to do. I've seen places where they kiss the Bible. And there's a reverence that they had for the word of God that we've lost a tense of. They turned it into a religious rite and practice in many cases because they may have kissed it, but they didn't live it. I don't want to go there. Tremble at His Word. All right, because I, I want to get through this today. Psalm 119. It's all about the Word of God. Psalm 119. We'll just take the first few verses here. That's 116. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with a whole heart. They also do no iniquity. They walk in His ways. 
You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Then I would not be ashamed when I look into all your commandments. I will praise you with the uprightness of my heart. When I learn your righteous judgments, I will keep your statutes. I, oh, do not forsake me utterly. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Oh, boy, do we need to hear that one. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have declared all the judgments of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies. As much as all the riches, I will meditate in your precepts. I will contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. We're going to stop here. There's a little more. I want to talk to you next time about Jesus. Because Jesus was God's representative he represented God in the earth. And we're going to look at what he said about how people treated him and treated his word. And that's what really began to drive this message home to me. If you've been uncomfortable this morning, it's because God's been making me uncomfortable. God's begun to deal with me about this issue of what authority he has in my life. He's been dealing with me about complete submission, complete surrender, and that the only place of peace, the only place of joy, is in complete surrender to Him. Romans 14, this is a message I saw when we were home last week. Romans 14 says that the kingdom of God does not consist of food and drink. It doesn't consist of blessings and all kinds of other things. Those are part, but the kingdom of God consists of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. And I know so very few Christians who have peace, real peace, and real joy in the Holy Ghost. Joy in the Holy Ghost doesn't mean jumping in church. It means joy in the nighttime. Joy, your life just exudes joy but I see very few Christians who are walking in righteousness. It's when we're under His authority that His kingdom can f truly flow and operate in our lives. It can't operate when we're, when we're operating against His kingdom principles. Adonai, Lord, Lord, Amen. Father, we thank You that you are a faithful Father. And because you're a faithful Father, you will prepare us. You will draw us. You will teach us. Thank you for the assurance of your word that says that you are at work in our life, both to will and to do according to your will. Thank you for the grace and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as he takes the word and begins to work it and knead it into our soul and into our spirit. And we continue to trust you in that process. In Jesus' name, amen.